Here is a place where there are thousands of people living online, talking to each other, doing things together. And to me, that's super interesting. And can we build art projects or even public art projects that are designed for people talking to each other who live online? I'm Sonia Manalili, and this is The Art Angle podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. The landscape of technological advancement in the art and design world is constantly evolving at a rapid pace. In recent years, we have witnessed the emergence of groundbreaking concepts like the metaverse, NFTs, and easily accessible AI available to anyone with an internet connection. Amid this rapidly changing landscape, it is crucial to evaluate the success and relevance of these platforms as they exist now, and how they might evolve in a future we are just beginning to comprehend. To delve into the significance of these technologies, Artnet and Mortlick Whiskey organized a captivating panel discussion titled Offscreen, The Current and Future State of Art, Design, and Technology. This engaging conversation brought together multidiscipline artists Trevor Paglin, Kiati Trehan, and Sebastian Erezures to share their insightful perspectives on the evolving digital domain. Thank you so much for joining us for Off Screen The Current and Future States of Art, Design, and Technology. I am Sonia Manalili, the executive producer at Artnet News. And I'd also like to thank our partner in this talk, Mortlick Whiskey. Thank you so much. In our rapidly evolving digital age, the landscape of art and design are continually undergoing transformation. Traditional notions are challenged and new possibilities are unveiled as technology becomes an integral part of the creative process for many artists. Tonight, I'm excited to speak with these esteemed artists to discuss how they're using technology in their practice and how they envision current technology will evolve. Since we have such a short time with them, I'm going to go ahead and delve into three main topics, which are the metaverse, NFTs, and AI. Before we start, I would like to introduce the illustrious guests. To my right, I have Trevor Paglin. Trevor is an artist whose work spans image making, sculpture, investigative journalism, writing, engineering, and numerous other disciplines. His work has been in the Smithsonian Museum of American Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and the Tate Modern. He has received various awards, including the MacArthur Genius Grant in 2017. Hi, Trevor. How are you doing this evening? Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. In the middle, we have Kiati Trehan. Kiati Trehan is a graphic designer and 3D visual artist. Her career covers a multitude of disciplines. She has created imagery for the likes of the Oscars, New York Times, Apple, and Google. Thank you for joining us, Kiati. Thank you. Happy to be here. And at the end, we have Sebastian Erezures, a designer, artist, and tech entrepreneur who's had his large-scale public art installations in Times Square, the new museum, and Chile's National Stadium. His art and design works have been showcased in more than 100 exhibitions and included in permanent museum collections around the world. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. So let's start with a topic that has kind of fallen out of conversation, 
in the world of technology, and that is the metaverse. But I am curious to see if you think that it still has potential and what potential that could be. Kiati, you created a project called Meet Me in the Universe, which you created 3D renderings of a Conran pirouette coat stand and introduced it to various brightly colored objects. And eventually they merge and spin and dance in the form of a mobile. First off, how do you define the metaverse? I think I had a pretty long and hopeful and positive definition maybe two years ago. And that's changed because I think the promise and the idea was so interesting in the beginning. But it kind of boiled down to VR for the web in most cases. And I think the gaming industry is a great source of inspiration. So how I define it now after all its applications or non-applications is is a little fuzzier. It's not a place in my mind or like an application. It's perhaps a changing relationship with technology and how we use it. And if I had to be like super tangible with it, it would be the way that we associate value to digital things in the same way that we associate them to physical things. And it could be like monetary value. How much am I willing to pay for something that's digital versus physical? And I think the gaming world, I don't know too much about it, but my husband's really into gaming. So I get to see secondhand how relevant that is. And also the mental value. Like, do I feel the same way when I see something in a digital space that I do in a physical space? I think like one concrete example that I can come up with is I'd done this project with Vogue and they created this meta ocean experience and we built these 3D sculptures again it was like VR for the web but when you're like going through the space going through the ocean and then you discover your sculpture that was like a delight and I wondered if I would feel the same way if I was walking down Times Square and I saw my art on a billboard like is, is that is that, a, is that the metaverse? I'm not sure. <laughs> we had a metaverse explainer episode that our amazing colleague, Tim Schneider, hosted. And he was speaking with Tina River Ryans. And the idea that the metaverse is this other place was just not something that she thought was a real definition. We are so immersed in technology. We interact with it so much. She had met her partner online. It's just so integral. And when you phrase it like that, it's like we're already existing in the metaverse. What do you think, Trevor? That sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sebastian? I think the notion of a metaverse is very old, very promising. The idea that an artist, as opposed to a film writer, doesn't need to sell their work to one single person, but could potentially have a variety of people pay them for experiencing their art is fascinating, right? Because you're no longer selling to one, you're instead being paid for the experience. That is fascinating. And for a lot of people, the promise of the headwares was supposed to happen. A lot of us lost a lot of money. I was building a metaverse with a team... uh, six, seven years ago, was sitting down with the head of uh, augmented reality of Apple. And he was basically like, Sebastian, it's going to happen next year. And we've all been hearing that promise forever. It eventually will happen. And it will be fascinating. The process takes time. And the problem is the in-between. So if uh, you're acquiring an NFT today, 
and you're basically buying a JPEG, it's kind of like going back to the 80s and buying an Atari game that you want to potentially be able to use in a computer today. It's similar, we're trying to sell artworks of low resolution and of no interaction for a future that we barely can comprehend. And so there's a disconnection, but it eventually will happen and ideally should be fascinating and freeing as long as uh, it's artists continuing to make the work and not AI. When you say it'll eventually happen, how do you envision that happening? So most people divide it between uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. So augmented is, is our reality as now, but enhanced with extra things, which could be everything from uh, data to sculptures that we're seeing here, all the way to disconnecting this and maybe being in the North Pole or a starship with other elements. That depends entirely on the quality of the headset, which is getting better and better. You don't get as dizzy, etc. But eventually the tech will get there. The moment the tech gets there, it will be fascinating because all of a sudden you won't have to maybe worry about the interior design of this place. You can just switch it to the new design. And you can say, hey, welcome to Neuer House. Today we have a new designer and tomorrow we'll have an architect that's presenting something else. That potential is dependent on the tech, but the tech is obviously moving very fast and we just need the hardware to catch up. The thing that I really like about AR is that you're both in the physical and the digital world. And with VR, do you imagine that we'll be spending a lot of time in VR or it's just very specific experiences that you want to have? Some of the fears is that we'll spend way too much time, which people have been afraid of that since the 60s, right? It's like you're watching too much TV and now you're spending too much time in front of your video games. We might end up spending the same amount of time. Ideally, the experience gets better. The problem is going to rely probably in the moment that if there's less jobs and less people getting well paid and more people on a universal basic income of sorts, there's just going to be more people plugged into a reality to avoid their current reality. And that might be a bigger sort of substantial change. I was trying to think of a word that describes that and it's like escapist. Are you moving into a space of imagination or are you escaping the real world? It feels like it can have positive and negative ramifications both. I have an Oculus. <laughs> I don't use it much. <laughs> and I think that kind of illustrates how the hardware hasn't caught up because the experience is like it causes a headache. So even if we talk about these in like these conceptual terms and we get all excited about it, when you're doing the thing, that's when you can really talk about how it is in today's time. Do you have an Oculus, Trevor? I do have an oh, Oculus. Oh, you do? Do you game on it? No. We were trying to build for a while in the studio installations that could show you scale in a way that's not possible like in physical spaces, but we kind of abandoned the project after a while because we just didn't like having shit on our heads. So now we're going to move to NFTs. During the 2021 to 2022 bubble, NFTs sparked many spirited discussions about the future of art ownership, the democratization of the art world, whether or not they were actually art, and more recently about whether or not they are dead. 
But recently, artists have been releasing lots of NFT projects. Sai Gocheng released the NFT project EET, or Exchange with Extraterrestrials, which he describes as an oracle that lives on the blockchain. It welcomes users to ask questions, much like they would ask a fortune teller, and it gives them answers. Then Kenny Schachter also released a new NFT project called Pop Principle, which is a gamified project that pits traditional art players against the digital art vanguard. But more importantly, Trevor, you released your NFT series, Preludes, which is a series of experiential musical NFTs, which I'm excited to speak to you about because one of your inspirations was Zanakis. They are part of your, quote, speculative reality work called Cyclops, which is now on view at Pace Gallery. It just opened on Thursday, correct? The NFTs are black and white abstract pieces made up of graphic musical notation. There are also puzzle pieces that unlock other aspects of the work in Cyclops. Can you share with us the concept of your experiential NFTs and how they all tie into the bigger picture? I think this is maybe a little bit related to the metaverse conversation where I don't care about NFTs per se. What I care about is here is a place where there are thousands of people living online, talking to each other, doing things together. And to me, that's super interesting. And can we build art projects or even public art projects that are designed for people talking to each other who live online? That's really where I'm coming from in terms of doing the NFT project. The NFT aspect is a way to connect with a kind of community that has those pre-established connections within them. So the Preludes Project is a series of musical scores. They're generative, much like in the style of a lot of post-war music was done, these kind of aleatoric and algorithmically generated compositions. But they're all generated in such a way that they have a puzzle in them. There's a musical puzzle. And if you solve the puzzle, it gives you a key to enter into this bigger, what I think of as an online public art project called Cyclops. And Cyclops is a series of audio puzzles that as you start to solve them, it starts to create an interactive story. The premise of the project is that we're in the 1960s and the CIA and other intelligence agencies are doing a bunch of mind control experiments, which is historically accurate. The CIA was doing a lot of work around how to manipulate people's brains at that time. And when Congress found out about it in the early 1970s, the CIA burned all the files. So the premise of the project is you're going through these old computers and recovering files from that program. And you have to do it collaboratively with other people. There's a team of people that built the project that includes musicians, sound designers, but also cryptographers, internet security experts, game designers, this huge range of investigative journalists and open source intelligence people. So there's a huge range of skills that you need to acquire to play this game. And so the idea is that you have to work with other people collaboratively and gain skills that paradoxically are meant to sort of inoculate you against mind control programs that may or may not exist today. What I find really interesting about this project is many things, but the idea of community, engaging a community, and then also the idea of the interactivity with NFTs. And I think the interactivity with an NFT 
is the next evolution of digital art and NFTs will be. And I think we can go so much further, you know, yeah. in terms of like collaboration and collective problem solving is such a more fruitful type of engagement. And so for me anyway, like in my own history, that's so much more satisfying. And so that's really interesting in terms of developing artworks that try to have that sort of interaction. I've only done a few NFTs. We sold uh, digital diamonds. So we set up a digital diamond company. And the idea was that diamonds are a monopoly held by the De Beer family. They have something like 80% of all the diamonds. And there's much more diamonds than we think there are. There's no scarcity of diamonds. And so today, many of the diamonds that are produced in a lab are man-made. So there was something very fascinating about the creation of value by restraining the axis. My team started working and we created NFT diamonds and managed to sell digital diamonds at the price of real diamonds, which was incredibly fun just for the sake of it. It's always fun to fuck with people. And there was something fascinating in how absurd the whole thing was. I mean, it's as absurd as buying a diamond that uh, theoretically gets devalued the moment you take it out of the shop. There was something fascinating here. The difference is each one of them continued to change. And because there's a, a general care about the environment that you would have similar to the one you would have maybe mining, right? There's literal miners in the NFT community. So there was something fascinating in being able to therefore create a diamond that could then pay for the costs of all of the miners and so on. I think, again, most of the technology of these artworks will not resist the pace of change. 10 years from now, we'll be looking at artworks that will be interacting and they will be all around us. They'll recognize us. They'll, they'll differ from us and be different from how they are to each one. And so many of these just won't exist, like video games, literally, that you'll get Pac-Man to maybe survive and a few others. But I think it's the space for the ideas and the search of conceptual games that can enhance other people's imagination that we can continue to contribute there as artists. Do you see yourself doing another NFT project? Uh, not for now. No? Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you see it remaining as an NFT as we know it now, or do you think that we'll just continually call it NFTs, but it'll just evolve as the technology evolves? Sure, and NFTs as a word is already slightly tainted. There's a variety of initiatives trying to change that with some friends. We're trying to do an NFT IP, trying to add IP to the file and therefore that you could actually own the rights to something in a different way. So there'll be variations of the concept, the phrasing, etc. Again, it needs to be the quality of the work that changes too, right? If the vast majority of NFTs are a bunch of JPEGs that are horrible, I mean, today you could just go into DALI and get better results in a second. And so it really is the responsibility of the artists, once again, to create work that is thought-provoking enough that it can continue to stand the test of time and maybe uh, continue to be in a collector's home or in a museum because of the story behind, because of the, what it meant for the context and the time. Kiati, I know you have created some NFTs. Do you see yourself continuing to create them? Or in a different capacity? Eventually, perhaps. But 
I think my relationship to NFTs is a little more like pedestrian <laughs> compared to Trevor and Sebastian. For a lot of us digital artists, it was really, this is R&D that I make. Now NFTs give me an additional purpose. But what I find exciting about the space, just as someone who's like on the circumference of it, maybe not in, not out, is what immersive is to the art world. It feels like mechanics are to NFTs and what you both of you are describing is like, there's a key, there's an if and then function basically going on. And it feels like that's the story of the art, but the way that you interact with the art is also the story of the art. So I have some ideas that I would love to try out. Like one of them I'll share. I'm hopefully nobody steals it. I'm okay if anybody steals it. But well, we haven't recorded, so if someone steals it, we <laughs> yeah. know that it's your idea. Yeah, I mean, something as simple as if there were only like two editions of an NFT and the artwork is about relationships and it takes two people to have a half an hour conversation to be able to unlock the artwork. So the process of accessing the art has to do with what the art communicates. It's super simple, but it's, I think I'm excited more about the mechanics than what that, what that might be. It's interesting because as you were describing it, I could see your work. It's two pieces interacting mm -hmm. with each other and unlocking. So yeah, we're I like brainstorming that, here right now. It's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> I feel like that would work really well with your aesthetic. So we are ready to move on to AI. It's a huge topic right now. Actually, Sebastian, you did a project with Mortlake using AI and you train the machine with specific words and it output three AR sculptures, which were distillation apparatuses. They looked to me part classic sculpture meets steampunk. And so could you share with us what that process was like, training the AI and creating something with it? Again, very thankful to Mortlag that's helping sponsor here. It's always great when a new brand comes in and starts helping all artists, so we have to celebrate them. In this case, what was fascinating was instead of following our own intuition or egos as an artist, was to instead stand back and ask AI to define the brand, define what it meant, describe its distilleries, describe its locations, describe its place in Scotland, etc., and then ask it to convert that into images that could represent an atemporal sculpture that we wouldn't necessarily recognize if it was uh, made in the 1920s or today. It was fascinating to do a hands-off project. At the time, it was called State of the Art, and the idea was that it's a state of the technology, state of the art of the technology as an example of exactly what was possible then. If we were to continue doing that same exercise every six months or one month, we would probably see the speed at which it continues to vary and change and the way in which it gets more sophisticated, more fascinating, maybe more precise and so on. So there's something very nice in a, almost if one was to save prompts and then understand later what a prompt means to an AI that has evolved, or on the contrary, understand how we've evolved to understand the prompt. It's such a fascinating subject for now that we're treating it in a very basic manner. We just 
give the AI a bunch of phrases and we're almost like a child expecting information. And it's fascinating because we tend to think that AI is in a reflection that the current chat AIs are a reflection of the engineers that built it. But the reality is that it's trained on the entirety of human knowledge. And so it's much more a reflection of us as humanity. And therefore maybe uh, psychologists, philosophers, artists, sociologists might be more primed to be able to prompt an AI in a similar manner that maybe a psychologist would sit down with a patient and start having a conversation with enough data points that can extract an extremely precise and original response. And so there's something fascinating there in which we might be going to, or kids might be going to AI prompt schools and we might be trying to understand how to get the machine to reflect back not only its current state, but a reflection of what we are and who we are as people and as a culture. Interesting. So actually, Trevor, I'd like to hear your reflections on that. You've been working with AI for a long time. So when you started working with AI, what was your experience like with training it and prompting it? And how have you seen it evolve and change throughout your creative process? Yeah, so I've been working with AI for quite a long time. You know, back in the day, we were making generative images, but we would have to build our own training sets, our own generators, build the whole thing up from scratch. And I was trying to build them in ways that were allegorical, right? So I was trying to build AIs that were, in, you know, based on Freudian psychoanalysis or the different kinds of allegories that humans have used to try to make sense of the world. Trying to build AIs that had logics that were fundamentally qualitative rather than, rather than quantitative. Since this generative turn in AI, my thinking about it has evolved as well. And now I guess I'm, what I'm really interested in is that experience that you described, which is that the aesthetic feeling of interacting with an AI is one of interacting with something that is supernatural because it can do things that you can't do, and therefore I think that we subconsciously want to endow it with a kind of power. And I was thinking about the fact that that puts us in an extremely emotionally and psychologically vulnerable position, right, when we're interacting with something that we think is smarter than us or that is more intelligent than us or what have you. And so I started thinking about we're quickly moving to a world where much of the content that we interact with, whether that is language or images, will be generated on the fly for us based on our metadata history. You and I, in the very near future, might watch a movie on Netflix, and that movie is different based on what Netflix thinks that we want to watch. So now add capitalism to that, right? So that movie will be modulated according to your desires in such a way as to try to extract as much value out of you as possible. So that relationship will become incredibly manipulative, right? And I think AIs will be very, very good at manipulating all of us. And I was trying to think about what is the metaphor for this? And I came up with a metaphor of psyops, 
And I started thinking about the fact that we're moving perhaps through this moment of surveillance capitalism into a world of psyops capitalism where much of the media that we interact with got our number, knows what we want to see, knows that we think it's hyper-intelligent and is trying to extract some kind of value from us. So I just opened a show last week at Pace Gallery, and the show is called You've Just Been Fucked by PsyOps. Now, in the background of it, I'm thinking about AI, but when you look at the content of the work in the show, there's nothing using AI generation generative work at all. The centerpiece of the installation is a former Air Force counterintelligence officer whose job it was in the 1980s was to create disinformation about UFOs. Sounds totally insane, but he was protecting like laser experiments and stealth airplanes, all kinds of weird stuff at this military base out in the desert. People would see weird stuff in the sky and say, what are you guys doing there? And he would say, let me tell you the truth, we're doing UFOs. And he would create these fake documents and give it to them and sort of ended up writing a lot of the plot of the X-Files, right? Over the course of the film, he's talking about this is exactly how you do it. This is the things that you need to have in place in order for somebody to believe that what you're saying is true. Right? So he talks about that process of manipulation. The other side of the thing is that he says, and although it was my job to create disinformation about UFOs, UFOs are totally real, and let me tell you all about them. Right? And so in, when you're interacting with this guy, you end up in this very weird headspace where you really can't tell what is truth what is not, and you know that you're being manipulated. And, and to me, that felt like the perfect allegory for the next moment in AI that we're moving towards very quickly. And being taken advantage of by our prior beliefs. Sebastian, you're actually writing a book about AI. Do you feel that AI is moving in that direction as well? Or do you feel that we have a little bit more agency in that? I think we have uh, no idea how fast it's moving. Basically, you have a whole bunch of people working, building this, that it's in their best interest to tell you that it's all going to be okay. You have uh, the people that are talking in front of the US Senate saying that we actually have to be careful about it, that really what they're doing is they're lobbying to make sure that only a few companies get to be in control of the technology and the vast majority of the population doesn't want to see it because it's hard it's difficult and it's almost like an annoying alarm clock that is ringing and ringing and ringing on snooze and no one wants to wake up and there's an overton window of how much we can and how much we're willing to accept and see and so the reality is that artificial intelligence is without doubt i believe the most important invention humanity will ever make. And it's going to impact every single one of our fields. Nevertheless, if you search a hundred podcasts of AI, the only conversations you're going to get are going to be related to bias, related to uh, deep fakes and, and being able to decipher what is true and what isn't. Alignment problem, if it escapes, are we going to be able to make sure it has the same values as us? and maybe a universal basic income. And it's ridiculous. Universal basic income, by definition, has the word universal in it, which means that it's impossible, because you're never going to get US taxpayers to want to donate part of their money to help people in Chile or in uh, Singapore, etc. So we need to start having a conversation that what's more, much more in-depth and more profound and uh, more complex. Because at the end of the day, 
even if AI takes a while to take some jobs, if we're not up to date, someone else using AI will take our job. Yeah, it's scary, it's troubling, but we need to start having a conversation about it. And it's, it's what we do. We've always been creative. We've always been good at this kind of stuff. We just need to adapt. So what do you think a healthy relationship with AI and how to move that forward in a responsible, productive way and creative way? I think we need to run towards it. So, so first, uh, blocking it makes no sense. Keeping up to date once a month makes no sense. This thing, th there's daily updates on what it's doing. And I would just try to say, okay, this is like going to the gym. I need to check up on it three times a week, see where it's at in my field and try to start taking a little bit of time to use it and play around with it and become familiar with it so that it's not something foreign and so that we're a part of it. And as it's happening, at least at the very beginning, there will be enormous amounts of opportunities. And so uh, why not be part of this enormous new market that's going to grow? I think people need to embrace it. It's the only thing we can do. And then the rest, we are going to have to have conversations about our data privacy. Today, it might feel okay that companies have our purchase information and our browsing history and all that. But the moment they have your conversations with an AI, they start having your ideas. They start having you, right? It's like your private personal conversations. We don't know what's happening with that stuff right now. We don't know if it's all being filed under each one's name. And so if we don't own that info, uh, someone else does. And so we need to start having conversations so that we can lobby around that, generate the necessary legislation, and in parallel, adopt this stuff as fast as possible so that it, we can hopefully benefit from it. Kiati, have you adopted it into your creative process? Just full disclosure, I work at Google, so it's a large part of my work. But outside of that, in my practice, I have. But when you mention like, these instances, I think about my mom. Keeping up to date is such a large part of securing a kind of future in today's you know, time. I wonder if we'd require like, a body that needs to do that job to make it simpler, to make it more accessible, to make it bite-sized and easy to explain how it can benefit. Or maybe it doesn't benefit her right now, but she still needs to practice some kind of engagement with it. Forever ago, I did a project with DeepMind, and I think that project stayed with me because they were talking about applications of AI that I have not encountered, very specific, like protein folding, what takes two years to figure it out, they figure it out in two minutes, and it benefits the researchers. And the researchers aren't at that point thinking about, will this replace us? Their thinking is, we can just move faster. That's also a very specific space. Or like nuclear fusion automation, which is impossible to do because the coils of a tokamak change like thousand times per second, which a human person cannot you know, monitor. And my job was just to make illustrations depicting the work that they're doing, almost like a marketing task. But every time I had a conversation with the people that are you know, writing these algorithms and are deep into the work, it was always followed up by another calendar invite on my calendar with the bioethicist who would tell me about, you know, the kind of work that they're doing with policymakers and lobbyists, 
so that they never forget to ask the question just because we can, should we? And I don't know if capitalism allows for that question. <laughs> so I think this was a unique lab and experience that's kind of stayed with me. You use AI in so many different... I use AI ways. in a lot of ways, but I just have to say, at a societal level, the idea of running towards AI is fucking insane. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, like, I just complete. I, I understand what you mean. I think you're talking about, like, individually, like, us trying to work with it. But we're seeing a very small number of companies running towards AI, and even the, at these companies who have not shown themselves to be good actors in terms of, like cultivating democracy, justice, and the kind of societies that we want to live in, even they're extremely concerned about what they're looking at and saying, like, this could have dramatically horrible impacts on society. And we want to be regulated or at least told to take a step back and analyze what's going on here because we have a range of very, very foreseeable, very, very disastrous situations, whether that is from security on one side, which is really very poorly understood in relation to AI, towards, you know, we can talk about the effects on the economy, we can talk about the effects of the consolidation of power in a very few number of companies. There's so many different points that are flashing yellow saying, caution, caution, take a step back, figure out what the fuck this is going to do think about it closely. In retrospect, it was a terrible idea to run towards the fossil fuel industry. It was a terrible idea to run towards nuclear weapons. And I think we can probably learn from those historical examples, ideally, and say, when we're looking at something that has the power to so dramatically affect society, we might want to think about what it is that we want to do here. I'm gonna have to answer to that. <laughs> Basically, there's no running away from AI. Oh, I agree with there you. Isn't, yeah, there isn't another planet to run to. So there's no running away. And basically, if this thing is going to spread like wildfire, you might be aware as fast as possible of what it's going to do. The book starts with a little quote that says, how do you escape a bear attack? And then it says, you can't. You can only run away faster than the rest of them. And here, the way of running faster than your competition or your colleagues is running towards adoption. Now, of course, we have to be extremely careful, which is why I'm, I'm talking about the need for pushing these ideas for legislation and so on. But we can't legislate that which we don't understand. We That's can't prepare for that which we do not understand. And so blocking it right now isn't doing anything. And so unfortunately, I think we need to start wrapping our heads around what this is. That doesn't mean maybe giving all your data to it or deciding to bet everything on AI. But we're about to see the biggest wealth creation in history, bigger than the internet and the digital phones combined. And, and everything is going to reshuffle. Within that, the arts too. The bigger threat for the arts is not so much, are we going to be forbidden from making art? It's simply, will making art continue to be satisfying when an artwork created by an AI is exponentially better than our own? That's when it starts getting really tricky. When what we make feels so flat, so boring, so one-dimensional. And when the audience starts preferring what the AI does, that starts to be a problem. So right now, um, there's a series of articles that were calculating the success 
amongst readers of articles written by an AI versus articles written by a person. And right now, this particular group had something like 40% more readership online in the articles written by an AI. That's a problem. If you're a writer, you want to get informed about how the AI is constructing that and not just look around and continue to work as usual. I definitely agree with that. And that's what, I'm, what I was trying to allude to with this world of psyops. Like coupling that, the aesthetic experience of interacting with AI, which we both agree is very powerful. And just thinking about what is the motivations on the other side of that experience, right? As a silver lining really quick, I don't want to be the doomsday person. There are many opportunities, right? So if an artist had been mainly focused on aesthetics, aesthetics is something AI does really, really well. And so the idea is if, if you start understanding how this thing functions and the iteration of visuals is something that's easy for it, well, maybe you need to go back into concepts and ideas. And so if you go back to stories, you were telling us about the stories behind the artwork that give it meaning. Well, maybe we just need to start tweaking which aspects of our practice are the ones where there are bigger moats between us and tech and try to focus on those, understanding that many of the others will be creeped up upon by the tech. It's interesting as we think about this with art, whenever new technology is introduced to it, there's always these amazing, complex conversations that are happening and obviously right now it is AI. As much as I would love to continue on and I think it's time to wrap this up, so I'd like to thank Trevor, Kiati, and Sebastian, thank you so much. I'd like to thank, thank Mortlick Whiskey, and I would love to thank Neue House for hosting us. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by me, Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.